Well, if you would please take your Bibles and turn with me. We'll be once again this morning in Luke chapter 4. The Gospel according to Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in your New Testament. And Luke chapter 4 continues to tell us about the early ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in the region of Galilee. And so we continue to read through this section and learn about what Jesus of Nazareth did when he ministered and presented himself before his people. I want to read for you verses 31 through 44 as we consider this morning Jesus' amazing teaching ministry. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 31. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone! What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all. And they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God! But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak, because they knew him to be the Christ. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. And the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Hopefully at some point in your life you have asked the question of someone, why should I listen to you? At least in your head you've asked, why should I care what you have to say? It's an interesting world that we live in where one of the most recent trends has been the rise of what are known as influencers. People who, on various internet platforms, uh, influence people towards certain trends or purchases on the basis of nothing more than the fact that they are the ones telling you to do this. There's not usually a lot of credibility behind such people. And in fact, the fact that they're called influencers should tell everyone that they're trying to influence you to do something, and yet people still follow after them because... They're influential, and they're told, this is the kind of thing that I should be thinking and doing. There, at times, are other people who are listened to because they have a little bit more substance or credibility, maybe because they have put their theories and their ideas and their sales ideas to the test for years or even decades and shown that there is something to what they're saying. This isn't just people telling you something to get something out of you, but that actually there is something behind it, and they can demonstrate that by their track record. They carry some degree of authority. 
But we often easily listen to people just on the basis of the fact that they tell us this is what is true or this is the way that you should think. To put it another way, as someone said in one of our family's favorite movies, I know you don't know who I am, but you can trust me because I'm on TV. This is the way that people often view these things. But as it should be, there should be authority behind the message. And no one carries more authority in his teaching and in what he says than the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in Capernaum, it is on full display. What the crowd demanded at Nazareth and he refused to give because of their unbelief, he did here at Capernaum. And he showed the power and the priorities of his message. He brought teaching that came with authority. He showed that he is the one who has the right to say what he's saying. He showed that he has the ability to do this and that what he is saying is backed up with substance. Not just because his content is good, but because it even comes with supernatural power. And so again, Jesus shows the people the power and the priorities of his message as he goes throughout Galilee, including, as we'll see here, the city of Capernaum. Verses 31 to 41 talk to us, first of all, about the authority of his teaching ministry. His teaching ministry is amazing, and it's demonstrated by his authority. And the account that Luke gives here in these verses takes place, he says, first of all, in Capernaum. He came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, not far away from where he was uh, ministering in the general region, of course. And this city of Capernaum became kind of a home base for Jesus during his Galilean ministry. And so he came down and he was teaching them, as he did across all Galilee, as it says here, on the Sabbath. The Sabbath, of course, is the seventh day of the week. This is our Saturday. It is the day that God rested from his works. And so he commanded Israel when giving his covenant to them in Exodus chapter 31, specifically saying that, he might, that they might keep the Sabbath as a sign of God's covenant between Israel and God as given through Moses after they had come out of Egypt. They were supposed to keep the Sabbath day holy. They were therefore freed up from doing work on this day. And so they were all able to meet together in the synagogue most fully. His teaching message then started there in the synagogue is where this took place in verse 33. This is where he was teaching them where everyone would have been gathered. Now, what was the response to him overall? Well, let's look first at his impression on the people. Verse 31 and verse 32. His impression on the people is this. They were amazed. They were amazed at his teaching. And the word here is a superlative. It is a word that refers to being overwhelmed. Refers to being astounded and astonished and filled with amazement. Now, we use these words kind of casually in our day, and so it's easy to lose sort of the sense of what's going on. Uh, We use words like awesome and wow and that's crazy to talk about things that really are just everyday events or maybe every hour events. But here, this actually is something that was truly amazing. They couldn't believe that this was happening. They had never seen anything like it, and they would never see anything like it apart from Jesus or the apostles that he handed off uh, these abilities to. And they were amazed at his teaching because his message was with something. It came with something. Now, Jesus' message came with a lot of things. It came with truthfulness. It came with uh, certain godly ways of saying it. And it came along with uh, Jesus being a certain person who was uh, supreme above all. 
But Jesus' message, excuse me, came along with something in particular, this verse says. His message was with authority. He had brilliant content. We read in verse 20, excuse me, verse 22, that people were wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. Uh, Jesus' teaching, content-wise, was incredible. But even that was not what got the attention of the people to rise to this level of amazement. What led the crowds to be astonished was his authority. And his authority shows that Jesus is not just a good teacher, not just the best teacher, not just the God-man teacher, but he is one who has more power than just the power of words. And it is shown in his authority. And this authority is revealed in multiple ways. And he begins in the synagogue here by showing his authority over demons. His authority over demons. Verse 33 tells us about the circumstances. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice. This man was possessed. Literally, he had the spirit of an unclean demon. Now, what does it mean for someone to have a demon or to be possessed by a demon? Well, in this case, functionally, what this is, is that the demon controlled him in at least part of his words and his actions. It's very obvious that he had a significant and controlling influence upon this man by virtue of being in him or, or of this man having this demon. The demon is highlighted as unclean, a word which is almost unnecessary because all demons are unclean. But it's here anyway, and it emphasizes the point that this is an evil being, an evil spirit. This one is against God, and he is against this man. Now, as for a little bit of background as, as far as who these are, um, demons are something we don't necessarily talk about a ton, but they are created beings by God that are fallen angels who would have rebelled against God at some point after he created them, and they would have followed after Satan as part of his evil army. They are spirit beings who can manifest themselves in certain ways at times, and in this case, they were taking over and they were, uh, they were possessing and controlling and even uh, speaking from and doing harm to the people who are here in Israel. When Jesus shows up and we read the gospel accounts, there seems to be an abnormal amount of demonic activity going on. And you read the gospel accounts, and even into the book of Acts, though somewhat trailing off, there is, uh, there is a level of demonic activity that doesn't seem to be replicated anywhere else in Scripture. And we don't exactly know why, although it may be the case that Jesus' presence on the earth and his coming to the earth uh, perhaps awakened or exposed or even forced their hand in some way or maybe that satan says this is the time he's here we need to go after him after all satan had already tried to tempt jesus and knew that he was there so uh, it would stand to reason that he would also make a, a concerted effort to attack jesus and attack his people during this time a little bit more openly either way in this case this demon possessed and controlled this man and a battle is about to be entered on the one hand one of satan's minions on the other hand jesus of nazareth the son of god jesus and satan have already squared off in the wilderness when jesus was tempted now the battle continues as jesus takes on this demon and he shows just how great he is in comparison to this being so he possessed this man and jesus is going to show his greater power now what does the demon do 
he, verse 33, cries out with a loud voice. And look at what he says. Let us alone. What business do we have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Notice the demon's knowledge of who Jesus is. He recognizes him, and he does so without Jesus saying anything about his own identity. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, but somehow this demon realizes and knows who Jesus is. Maybe he is able to see something by virtue of being a spirit and of being an, uh, an angelic being that we can't see apart from our human faculties. Maybe it is something to do with the, the presence of the spirit of God upon him. We don't know for sure, but we do know that he rightly identifies him. And it is usually the case for demons to spread lies and to teach things that are wrong. In fact, the scripture refers to doctrines of demons. But in this case, he gets it right. He at least knows who Jesus is. He rightly identifies him. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus wanted him saying this, as we'll see. But it does mean that he got it right. Who is Jesus, according to this demon? He says, you are the Holy One of God. Which speaks to the fact that he is set apart and pure and special as holy. That, that he is the only one who this label can apply to. The Holy One of God. He is not just another of the Holy Ones, like the saints, like believers. But he is the Holy One of God. And he is the one who belongs to God, who has been set apart by him and sent by him. He recognizes that there is no one else like Jesus. And he says, what do we have to do with each other? Why are you here? Why have you come and, and invaded on my personal space? This is another way of saying, leave me alone. Scram, Jesus. You're not supposed to be here. Go do your thing wherever you're supposed to be. But what do you have to do with me? Why are you getting in my business? Now, I want you to notice something interesting here. Because there are two things going on in this demon at the same time. One is hostile opposition to him. And the other is a terrified fear of him. Both of these things are going on. He is, he is opposed to Jesus. He is confronting him. But he's terrified of him. Now, this demon is very strong. He's taken over this poor man. And he even challenges Jesus directly. He cries out with a loud voice. But at the same time, he sort of reluctantly acknowledges who Jesus is. And he knows who Jesus is accurately. He is Jesus. He's from Nazareth. He's able to destroy the demon. He's the Holy One of God. And because he knows who he is, he's aware of the threat and says, Have you come to destroy us? So he knows that Jesus can do this. And on at least one other demonic encounter, the demon Jesus runs into asks, are you going to destroy us before the time? Before the time. Recognizing that there is an appointed time that even they know is coming where they will be destroyed. Which is an acknowledgement that Jesus not only can destroy them, but will destroy them. And of course, make no mistake about it. Jesus can destroy the demons and will. And along with that, he will destroy anyone who rebels against his rule and against his reign. The threat is just as real for people as it is for demons. The only difference is that the demons who know more about this threat than people do actually believe it and they tremble. James 2.19 tells us that. You believe that God is one, the demons also believe and they shudder. And yet the demons rebel and fight back. It's a very strange combination of reverence and rebellion. It doesn't make sense logically when you think about it. If he's so scared, why does he rebel? But the answer is simply because he does. 
Because he does. He chooses to rebel. That's what he wants. That's what he wants to do. He recognizes the power of God and the power of Jesus. He fears God in a certain way. He acknowledges who he is in a certain degree of truth. But he wants his own way. He doesn't want to submit to the creator of the universe. He wants peace with God, but not on the terms that God has laid down. He doesn't want Jesus to do anything to him, but he doesn't want to submit to Jesus. It's very inconsistent. And yet, this is the very heart of so many people who are created men and women. This is not just demons who do this. This is everybody who knows anything about God and anything about Jesus who says, I don't want them to rule over me. I know they're good. I know that they're like this. Many people even believe in theory that they can do these things. And yet, they say, I'm not going to submit to him. And this is what the demon did. And this is what they're like. This is even what Satan is like. He knows, and yet he deludes himself functionally by rebelling against God. There is then here a unique kind of confirmation of who Jesus is by this statement. If you were to go to someone and, you know, talk to their best friend and say, is this person, you know, is this person all that they say that they are? You know, they would probably be a little biased toward them and be inclined to think, yeah, you know, actually, they are exactly who they say they are. But if you went to that person's worst enemy and said, is this person who they say they are? What are you going to think is going to happen? Well, what if they said, you know, I hate their guts, but they are exactly who they say they are. You would tend to believe that. And that's what's going on here. This demon, unprompted by anyone, being in a state of rebellion and hatred toward Jesus, nonetheless says exactly the same thing about who Jesus is as Jesus himself does. And he does us a favor and tells us who he's seeing. Now notice here that once Jesus comes in, this demon is now stopped in his tracks. And he's unable to do harm to the man once Jesus takes him on. You notice his poor condition. The demon takes control of him. Elsewhere we read of demons causing sickness or the inability to speak or just other horrible things. We read of them throwing people into fires making them do all kinds of things, involuntary movements. These demons are just not concerned at all about the people that they're controlling, but not so with Jesus. Not so with Jesus. And he comes to liberate this man from the more powerful being to whom he had been subject. And here's how he does it in verse 35. He rebuked him. He rebuked him. One lexicon defines it this way, to express strong disapproval of someone. Rebuke, reprove censure and Jesus speaks directly to this demon and says two commands be quiet and come out of him and that is exactly what happens when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people he came out of him no more words no more possession and also note this no lasting impact from having had this demon he came out of him without doing him any harm Jesus has done this not with magic tricks, not with incantations, not with dark arts of some kind, not with hocus pocus. What has he done this with? Nothing but his word. Nothing but his word. Jesus has a message that comes with authority. And it isn't just that he speaks words of truth. Rather, he speaks words that order around the very demons of Satan himself. And as the song we often sing says about Satan and about Jesus' power of his words, one little word shall even fell him, not just his demons. This is Jesus' absolute authority 
on display. Let this be a warning to anyone who resists him that if you oppose Jesus, your fate will certainly not be any better than this demon's because the demon is more powerful than the man. And if the demon couldn't resist Jesus, don't think that you can either. And on the other side of this, notice that Jesus is more powerful than any demonic forces who could come against you. We know that there are struggle, Ephesians 6 tells us, is against flesh, and, not against flesh and blood, but rulers and authorities and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We know that Satan fights against us, and that can be a scary thing because there are so many possible ways that he can attack us through false, uh, through false doctrine, through drawing us away from God. He could try to attack us through circumstances and through uh, various difficulties that he might bring, as we read about in the book of Job. And all of those hardships and ways where Satan can make our lives miserable. And yet, what does this tell us about the place and the order of authority? It tells us that Jesus is above them all. And he shows his power not only against Satan, but also for the benefit of this man. Jesus graciously helps this man using his uh, power and the authority of his words to care and to cast out this demon. Well, the crowd sees what's happened. Let's see their reaction. Verse 36, amazement came upon them all and they began talking with one another, saying, what is this message? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. The crowd in Nazareth added skepticism to their amazement. Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this just somebody from Nazareth? Don't we know this little Jesus that's grown up? Not so here. And we don't know if they all believe the gospel, but they certainly didn't start fighting about who Jesus was. Instead, they recognized this man is different than anyone else. And we are in awe of him. And so then, it didn't just stay local. The report was spreading. Verse 37, the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Jesus is starting to get very, very popular. But before the crowds would start flocking to him, we find another significant event of the same nature, where he shows his authority in a different way, that is, over illness. His authority over illness or over sickness. Verse 38, then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Simon, of course, is Simon Peter. He has a mother-in-law, which indicates, just for the sake of understanding that Peter uh, was married, that Peter had a wife. And this is not the only place that says this. 1 Corinthians 9.5 says the same thing also, as it might sometimes be taught that it would be inappropriate for the so-called successors of Peter in certain religious traditions to be married. It was not the case for Peter that he was unable to be married, and he was said to have a wife because he had a mother-in-law. Simon's mother-in-law, though, as far as the direct uh, event going on here, was suffering from a high fever. She was very sick. And so they asked him, to help her. What can you do for her, Jesus? And standing over her, what did he do? He rebuked the fever. He rebuked the fever. Not your typical way of treating a fever. Anyone ever tried that? How's that gone for you? Have you been successful? I have found that uh, some type of, uh, you know, Tylenol or something like that is more effective for me, but that's because I don't have the power that Jesus had. Jesus rebuked the fever. This is the same word that was given to us in verse 35 when he rebuked the demon. He rebuked the demon in the same way. 
We need to be careful here, though, because this doesn't mean that there's somehow a hint that there was a demon behind this fever. It doesn't mean that, you know, Jesus is rebuking the fever, but really what's back there is that there is a demon causing this. Demons did have certain physical effects upon people on many occasions, but it simply doesn't say that here. It says that he rebuked the fever. And we need to understand this so we don't get carried away by thinking that every disease and every problem has some type of demonic basis behind it. That, you know, the real problem behind our problems is always just demons, including our sickness. Which would then mean that, for some people in their view, that rebuking them is the way to go about this. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't say he rebuked a demon of fevers. It just says he rebuked the fever. Why he did it this way, we don't know exactly, except for the obvious reason that the fever was the problem and he wanted it gone. And so because he has the ability with his words to command things and they happen, he spoke to the fever and said, get out of there and leave her alone. And that's exactly what happened. It left her, verse 39. It left her and she immediately got up and waited on them. Notice that her fever was completely gone. Notice that it happened immediately. Notice that she was not wiped out sick anymore. And that she was able to just get up and do normal things immediately as if it had not been the case just a few seconds ago that she was sick with a high fever. And this is the kind of healing that Jesus does. People today talk about various types of healing ministries so-called or different things that have to do with in the name of Jesus trying to command certain things to change in people's lives and sicknesses and illnesses and so on. Um, but these are the kinds of things that are gradual or hidden. They aren't the kinds of things that would be obvious to everyone. The crowd looks at these kinds of things and says, it is no doubt that Jesus did this miraculously. That's the kind of thing that Jesus did. It's instant. It's obvious. It's, there's no recovery. There's no questioning. And even his opponents can't question whether Jesus actually did that. The opponents of Jesus noted that Jesus did many signs and the people followed him because of that. They didn't even doubt that. They just said, we've got to get rid of him anyway. So Jesus does a miracle of casting out this fever, of removing the fever from his mother-in-law. But in addition to healing her, he also then heals many others. Many others. Verses 40 and 41. He heals many others. Now note, while the sun was setting, which likely freed up the Jews to travel, uh, because it was the Sabbath day after all, and they would have their own sort of uh, additional Sabbath day restrictions that were imposed upon them by the leaders of the nation, so they were unable to, uh, to travel a certain distance. Now the sun sets, and they are free to do that. So anyone who uh, uh, was sick, or had any who were sick, and had various diseases, brought them to Jesus. So he didn't just wave a wand either. What does it say that he did? He was laying his hands on each one of them and was healing them. Jesus graciously cared for not only this one person that he knew, his mother-in-law, uh, not his mother-in-law, but Peter's mother-in-law, but also all of these people who came. Jesus was generous. Jesus was gracious. He didn't reject them and say, I don't know you. He didn't reject them and say, isn't one sign enough? When they came to him, Jesus reached out to each one and he touched them and he healed all of them. It wasn't just sickness though. Verse 41, demons were also coming out of many shouting, you are the son of God. Very similar to what the first demon said. But again, Jesus rebuked them and he would not allow them to speak 
And notice here why. Because they knew him to be the Christ. Luke does not say that Jesus said this or stopped them because they were saying that he was the Christ. He says that they wouldn't let them talk because they knew him to be the Christ. They are speaking correctly. They know who he is and he doesn't want them to blab about his identity. He wants to be the one to present who he is in a certain way. As much as the demonic, you know, outburst kind of uh, does identify for us who Jesus is and adds an additional confirmation, Jesus doesn't just want to run around with all of his biggest supporters being demons coming out of people. He wants to be actually to uh, be able to distribute the message the way that he wants on his terms. And he's able to do that. He wouldn't allow them to speak. So they're saying, you are the son of God, but he quickly silences them and he limits their ability to say the kinds of things that they would want to say. And he doesn't want the message to come from them. He wants it to come from himself. When the crowds come then, Jesus heals both groups, the sick and the demon-possessed. Overall then, this section shows us in these multiple events, Jesus has authority over both demons and disease. What does this tell us then? That not only do, does Jesus have the spiritual power that he is able to overcome any kind of uh, spiritual opposition to us, that he's able to protect us from any satanic attack, but that also he is able to overcome any type of disease. Now, one of the hard things might be in looking at this is that um, we often have diseases that do not get healed. We often have diseases that Jesus does not just, you know, come down to earth and specifically take away. We even have diseases that we pray and pray and pray and God does not change and sometimes they get worse and they take us all the way to the end of our life. Does this mean that Jesus does not care about us? Does this mean that Jesus is unable to do this? No, Jesus has always been able to do this. But he had a specific purpose for these people at this time. And he acted according to wisdom. He had a purpose of coming into the world and he showed his compassion and he showed his care. And he showed his ability to do this. But it was not the full scope of what he's able to do. And anytime this is the case, we know that that's because there is a reason that God has that is better for us in the long term. And even in that moment in certain ways than if he simply were to heal us. God has the ability, if he wants to, to take away every single disease and every single thing that, that is a problem for any of us all at once. But he has purposes for not doing so. And we don't know the whys of all the reasons that he does that. We can't get behind his perfect plan and see and know what are the reasons why you let this happen. What are the reasons why you ordain this? And if he told us what his infinitely wise plan was, we wouldn't be able to grasp it anyway. And certainly he's not going to subject it to our judgment, even though sometimes we like to put ourselves in that position. But we do know that God uses hardships, including sickness, to bring about good in us. We know that just as James 1 tells us that uh, the testing of our faith produces endurance through any trials, and sickness is most certainly uh, a common one, if not the most common one of all. And so God uses these things to make us more like Jesus Christ, we know in Romans 8, 28, it tells us that God works all things together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. 
And God has his perfect plan for us. And what we need to make sure that we are doing is understanding two things along with this. That God is all-powerful and able enough to do any of this. Jesus could take away any suffering at any moment. But he chooses not to because he loves us and because he is perfectly wise. And he knows what the best plan is for us. So if you're looking at this saying, you know, I wish Jesus were here to help me. I wish Jesus were here to help someone that I love and that I care about. I think we can all say, that would be a great thing. And that would not be bad. And we would love to see it happen. But we also say, insofar as the Lord does not yet return, and insofar as those diseases, those sicknesses, those hardships remain, God is still good. God is still wise. And it's not a lack of ability, but it is out of a wise and loving care for us that these things remain what they are. But one day, that will all change. One day, these will not be around anymore. There's going to be a time when God will remove all suffering and all pain. And that will be a time where sickness will be gone, where the suffering will be gone. And we will all who know the Lord rejoice in that day with unspeakable joy. So then, Jesus here heals many and shows not only that he cares about the people, but that he has this authority. And on account of that, his message is one to be believed above all others, above all others. He is the preacher who people should listen to. He is the one who should be valued. He is the one who is worthy of being heard, of being followed. And if you see these things and you don't follow him, what are you doing? What are you doing? This is exactly the one who should be followed and trusted above all else. Well, this has been a full day for Jesus, a very full day. And when the next day comes, we learn something else about his teaching ministry. And it's just uh, almost a preview of sorts, but it's still here. So verse 42 begins to tell us about the priority of Jesus' teaching ministry. The priority. What does Jesus see as his mission and his purpose? What is the most important thing for him to do in his teaching? Now, Jesus, again, had a lot of purposes coming into the world. We talked about this in chapter 2, that he said he had to be about his father's business or in his father's things. And we know that Jesus came into the world to suffer and die on a cross and then to defeat death. Uh, but that's not the only purpose. Jesus had a multifaceted purpose, and there are different things that are highlighted at different times. And in this case, he highlights one of those particular things that he came for, and it has to do with his teaching. Why was he doing what he was doing, and what was he hoping to accomplish in his teaching ministry? So when day came, it says, he went to a secluded place. We're told in Mark's gospel that the reason he did this is so that he could pray. An interesting note on a lot of levels and one that you might just want to think about and put a pin down in so that you can explore and meditate upon later. The fact that Jesus needed to step away and pray. Jesus, the son of God, needed and wanted to pray and he made the time and the effort to do so even when he was in high demand to minister to people. But here, Jesus, uh, Luke has something else he wants to focus on. And it says the crowds were searching for him. And they came to him, and they tried to keep him from going away from them. This is a big thing to understand. This is, uh, there are lots of reasons why Jesus said that he came. But one of the clear statements is here in verse 43. He said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this 
purpose. I want you to see the contrast here and notice, first of all, what he was not sent for. What was Jesus not sent for? First of all, he was not sent to do what the people wanted. He was not sent to do what the people wanted. He left them and went to a secluded place. The crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. His compassion was real, but it was not simply, let's do what people want me to do. I must be available to do whatever they want me to do. No, Jesus was driven by what God said that he needed to do. So Jesus spent all night ministering to the people, and he spent all night doing these things for them. But he was always mindful of what God's greatest priority was for him. And he understood that that was not to be changed at the whims or even the good and noble desires of the crowd to want things that Jesus even affirmed were good things to want by virtue of doing them. So he wasn't sent to do what the people wanted. The crowds are never to dictate our ministry as believers to other people. The crowds and what people want are never to determine what we do before God. We look and see their needs. We understand what they say. But we look at them all in light of Scripture and what God lays out. There are all the time surveys or articles or polls. What do you think the church should do? What should the church be? You go to the neighborhood and say, hey, if you were running the church, what would you have it be like? What would the church be? What should people who are Christians do? And the interesting thing about it is it always kind of seems to end up in the place that would be the most self-serving to the people that the church would minister to. An amazing coincidence. Here, what the people wanted did not dictate what Jesus did. He also was not sent to merely or simply do miracles. He was not sent just for that. Not just to have compassion or even primarily to have compassion toward people in terms of doing um, do mercy ministry. Jesus came and did plenty of mercy ministry. And I would add that he was uniquely uh, capable of doing mercy ministry because he had miraculous powers like no one else. But nonetheless, he came and he really did it. He cared for people, but it was always subservient to his higher mission of preaching the kingdom of God. This is Jesus' unique mission. He didn't come to do what the people wanted. He didn't come to simply do miracles. Instead, what he was sent for is in verse 43, to preach the kingdom of God. What he was sent for is to preach the kingdom of God. And the word here is the word for preach the gospel, a word we sometimes translate as evangelize. He was sent to spread the good news about the kingdom of God. Now, it is interesting that Luke doesn't actually say here what the kingdom of God is. There are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, one of them is that Jesus doesn't say here what the kingdom of God is. He simply says, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. He doesn't explain. The reason for that uh, might be that there is a whole lot already laid down in the Bible about what the kingdom of God is. And that there's a whole lot also coming later on in Jesus' ministry explaining the various angles on what the kingdom of God is as well. And the nature of the kingdom will and should become more and more evident as we go. But for now, perhaps a brief summary will suffice. The kingdom of God is, on a very basic level, God's rule over creation. It is God's rule over his creation. And when Jesus talks about preaching the kingdom of God, that is kind of a shorthand for a whole package of specific ways by which God intends to bring about 
that rule over creation. God does not just rule, generally speaking, though he does rule sovereignly over all things. But the kingdom of God also has functional, specific, detailed components. And Jesus is not here giving an exhaustive message about the kingdom of God. He's not saying the kingdom of God is equivalent to the sum total of only what he's preached so far. He's not saying that the entire kingdom of God is somehow fulfilled just by him being there and in his person, his arrival on earth. Instead, when Jesus preaches about the kingdom of God in Luke, he's generally preaching about various truths about the nature of it. He's preaching about who gets into it and how you can get into it. He's telling everyone about how the arrival of the kingdom is contingent upon his presence. And that because he is here on the earth now coming to Israel, that means something for the nearness of the kingdom, at least while he was here. And he's preaching about the conditions and the timing of its arrival. And so consider the people wanted Jesus to stay because of the things that he was doing for their physical bodies, and he was certainly capable of that. But what did he say needed to take precedence? Preaching the kingdom of God. This is so vital that even all the way through the book of Luke and all the way into Acts, into the second, uh, the second half of Luke's writings, when you get to the very, very end of the book of Acts, what does it say that, that he is doing? He is preaching the kingdom. He is preaching the kingdom of God. Acts 28, verse 31, the last verse, Paul was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. Jesus came and proclaimed it, and the message of preaching the kingdom of God has never stopped. And for this reason, we should pay close attention when we are looking further through Luke as to what Jesus has to say about what that kingdom is and how we can be in it. And so he says, I need to go to other places and preach. This is what I was sent for. I was sent to preach it all over Israel, sent to preach it to this whole country. And then, of course, it would be taken by his apostles outside the nation to all the Gentiles, which is why we have heard about it today. We're about to enter a time of communion together, and even communion is a reminder to us about the fact that the kingdom of God is going to come because he says in first uh, corinthians eleven twenty six, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes and jesus on the night of his betrayal said i'm not going to eat and drink this with you again until we drink it together in the kingdom of god so use this opportunity among other things as brian comes to lead us to encourage your hearts that this kingdom will one day be fulfilled and that if you're a christian you get to be part of it